They're this. Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. Instead, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. He said that in the House of Commons in 1947. You see, it's a funny system and it sort of works. It's the best we've got, is basically what he's saying. And we can see that. We can see that that's what happens because so often, in, in effect, a, a republic is not that different to a monarchy. Decisions often come down to one person. And we don't quite blame the government so much as we blame ScoMo or we blame Dominic or we blame Donald. We direct our unhappiness more to the people, to the individual person, rather than necessarily the party. After all, for example, what is Vladimir Putin if he's not a dictator in all but title? Someone watching the doors? So, what do we look for in a leader, in a president, in a prime minister, in a king? Well, we all want the perfect king. We all want the perfect leader, don't we? And for us Aussies, the perfect leader would be someone that will stay out of my way, let me do what I want, won't tax me, will provide me with free medical care and all the roads and communication infrastructure that I need. And if we're really altruistic, we might say a leader that will share my views on what is best and implement them on economics on terrorism, on social issues, on the climate. But what will God's king be like? That's what Isaiah is looking at. What is God's king like? And unless God is as self-centred and self-absorbed as we are, his king will actually be quite different to ours. And this king will bring the knowledge of the Lord. The The thing about a king or a queen that many of us don't like is that they get power from parentage not from merit. They haven't worked their way up. They haven't convinced everyone to vote for. Now, I'm not going to stand here and defend hereditary monarchy, but there's no doubt that in the Old Testament, God gave Israel a king. And God promised that one family, the family of David in the end, would rule forever. And Isaiah talks about that in verse 1, if you've got your Bible open there. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. You see, the father of King David was Jesse. And so this one, this child of of Jesse, will come from this royal family, the shoot or the plant that comes out of him. And this king will be God's king because he has God's spirit there in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him like it had upon David. And this shows that this king is God's king. And this king is going to be amazing because he's going to rule like God. He's going to rule wisely. He'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding because his wisdom, you see, springs from the knowledge of God. As another king of Israel said in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, Isaiah knows that, and Isaiah says, is told by God that this is the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, verse 2 and verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
He will delight to follow God. He will delight to know God. That's why this king is wise, because he fears the Lord. And he's powerful, verse 2, the spirit of counsel and of might. He comes with God's strength. Now, in order to rule well, you need the ability to decide things and the power to make them happen. I can decide brilliant stuff as much as I want, but I can't make anything happen. I can't even make them happen at home sometimes. So it's, you know, you need both things to work to actually accomplish things to get what you want. And this all comes from God. He has both the wisdom and the power to accomplish these things. But unlike many kings who judge, this one will judge righteously. In the end, what we want is judgments to go our way. I got pinged with a a parking offence over here the other day while I was here during a a funeral and I appealed to the state. I wanted the judgement to go go my way, which it did not. But you see, that's not, in the end, what we really need, what we really want is not someone who's going to judge everything our way, but someone who will judge absolutely righteously. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he, if, what he hears with his ears. Now, most of us will have seen this image before. And this is justitia, lady justice. The scales of justice in one hand, and often there's a sword of judgment in the other, and she's blindfolded, which means justice is dealt without no matter who stands before you. Great or small, nobility or commoner, billionaire or pauper. But this king doesn't judge by what he sees. But verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. It is an awful reality that the poor in our world find it hard to get justice. But when true righteousness judges, then the decisions are not swayed by beauty or eloquence or money, but simply by what is right or wrong. And this is at the very heart. See verse 5? Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This, This is the most notable thing about him. He has this perfect grasp of justice And in justice, verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. You see, the only way that there's going to be true and lasting justice is when wickedness is destroyed. We need to listen and hear that carefully because, you know, it's really easy to think of evil as as a sort of depersonalised thing. There's this thing out there called evil that's going to be dealt with one day. No, evil is not a thing that you can grab and destroy. Wickedness, evil, is the inclination of a creature's heart away from its creator. So to deal with evil, you actually have to deal with evil creatures. You have to deal with evil people. People who reject their creator, who willfully and stubbornly reject their creator. And then... Their creator will reject them and judge them. And thus, in the new order, after this happens, after the wicked have been destroyed, there will be peace. 
And that is what the imagery that follows is all about. Let me read it to you again, because it's just so beautiful. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. That sense of peace, that, that natural and relational harmony is, is, is just so undeniable. It just sort of drips out of the words because harm and destruction has no place in God's presence. That's verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Peace in all of creation will reign because evil is done away with, because evil people have faced the judgment of God. See, in the Bible, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not what I desperately wanted at 4.30 yesterday afternoon with so much noise going on around me. I just wanted the, the noise to stop. No, it's peace is what comes after the final victory, over the final victory over evil in all its places and guises. This king, this king does even more. He doesn't just bring peace to the earth, he unites the people. See, God shows his banner and the people come, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. It's his people, people of Israel will rally to him and come to his glorious resting place from all over the world. They will come, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. That was as far away as they could think, from all over the world. But it's not only his people, it's also the nations, it's the Gentiles will come back. We heard it in verse 10. The nations will rally to him. The Jews and the Gentiles that God gathers will come to the banner and find peace because Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. All those historical enemies, all the opposition to God's people will be gone. And the way home will be opened, the king's highway. Highway will be opened from Ashur, which is Assyria, Back to Judah, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel, verse 16, when they came up from Egypt. It's this road here, it's known as the King's Highway. It's this major thoroughfare all up and down the Middle East. It was open and people could come, people could use it. It was no longer a place that was trodden by the armies of the world. And it extended all the way to Egypt. So there was no impediment to God's people coming home. The people of Judah who'd been forced from their land could come back to God's holy mountain. So this king will come. And he will come in peace and judgment, in wisdom and strength as God's king. And to some extent he did. This king Zerubbabel, that's a great name, isn't it, guys? He came back from Babylon 200 years later in 538 BC. But as in much of Old Testament prophecy, there's this sort of immediate fulfilment that sort of 
partially works, but then there's a later and more complete fulfilment. So Zerubbabel returned after the Babylonian captivity, but he was not the king they'd hoped for. And within another 200 years after them coming back, they'd been conquered again by the Greeks, they'd been then conquered by the Romans. And so the peace and victory and the end of evil had not appeared. So what had happened to the root of Jesse? What had gone on here? What of the divine branch that Isaiah looks forward to? Well, this side, this side of the birth and death of Jesus, of course, we can see it so clearly, those of us that know the story well. We have a wholly different perspective. We know that Jesus came as David's son. The stump of Jesse, as as, uh, was read for us in Romans, the gospel of Jesus is the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, was the stump of Jesse. And he had God's spirit in power and in justice and in peace. So in verse 4, and through who the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus brings justice, perfect righteousness, perfect victory. He is the king of Isaiah's prophecy. And it's in him that we see God's people being gathered from every nation on earth, as we read in the book of Revelation, verse 9. With your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so it's in him, you see. It's in him that salvation actually comes to you and to me, that the people of God breaks the bounds of Israel and becomes people who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It reaches out to every part of the earth, even to us in Australia, 14,000 kilometres and 2,000 years later. So what do we expect of a king? If we're going to have a king, this is the sort of king you want, isn't it? The one who brings righteousness and peace and glory and, and victory over all the enemies and who is truly wise, who is truly powerful, committed to peace and the end of all evil, who will judge absolutely fairly and impartially, who understands everything and knows us perfectly and only wants our good. It's hard to argue about a king like that, really, isn't it? if we want a king. But the truth is, I suspect, that no matter how good a king or queen is, we really don't want someone else telling us what to do, telling us how to live. We are deeply autonomous. We are deeply rebellious. We are deeply self-deciding. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And so if we get to choose, I think most of us choose no king over me. The problem with that decision is that the king has already come. The king's already here. He was born 2,000 years ago in this troublesome backwater of the Roman Empire, uh, of the family of David, chosen by God, indwelt by God's spirit. And because he is God become human, the Christmas story, that's what it's all about, he will judge perfectly. He has all power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And so, 
whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we sort of accept it or not, he is our king because he's the king of the whole universe. And so he comes to you and to me and he says, are you one of my people? Are you one of my, one of those who will rally to my banner? Will you listen to me? Will you hear my words in the scriptures? Will you accept Jesus, my son, my appointed king as your king and saviour? Or will you be one who is hostile to me, who will face my judgment? God says, I sent my son to take flesh, to become a baby that we've just been celebrating for the last couple of weeks, to grow and to suffer and to die for us so that we can be forgiven. Forgiven for all the wrong things we've done, for the wrong thoughts we've had, for that internal way that we keep wanting to make up our own rules and live our own life the way we want to. The way we ignored God. The way we've opposed God. All that can be forgiven. We just ask and trust. We ask for forgiveness and trust that Jesus has taken the punishment for us has taken our death for us. If we already know that love of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's important for us to remember that he is our king, that we listen to him, that we follow him, that we serve him. But you may not be in that position tonight. You may be someone who doesn't know yet the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be someone who's tuned in online and is thinking, I, I wonder what this church thing is all about. I wonder who Jesus is. Well, you've just heard that Jesus is the king of the universe and you've just heard him call and say, will you rally to my bow? He will take away all the hurt. He will take away all the pain that comes from being rejected by God because you have rejected him. And you can turn to him tonight. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment that you can pray with me. And if this is your prayer, then please reach out to us. Fill in a connection card and let us know that you've, you've done this. Let us know that you've prayed this prayer because we'd love to help you get to know Jesus Christ better. We'll show the connection card a little bit later. Just hang in there. But I'm going to pray this prayer that's up on the screen. It will come in front of you on your screens now. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me, that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. If that's your prayer, then God has forgiven you. He has given you new life. And we would love to hear from you. But we're going to celebrate that new life now in song. We've got this wonderful song that was written by John 